Hello and welcome to The Revolution Begins at Home, a podcast about activism, what it looks like and who gets to do it. My name is Chantelle Lewis. I'm a public sociologist and the co-founder and co-host of the Surviving Society podcast. Throughout this series, I'm going to be speaking to activists and advocates about their work. We'll be talking about what it means to be an activist, what it involves and how structures of power determine what we consider to be activism or worthy of an activist movement. In today's episode, I spoke to Keisha Wade-Speed. I just ordered so many books. I've been doing like book swaps with other black people. And my mum, when she saw the posts coming, she was like, Keisha, you're becoming a revolutionary. And I'm like, yeah, I, I love it. Even though- Keisha is a student. And whilst on the fellowship at the Advocacy Academy, she co-founded the Halo Collective. I talked to her about their ethos, how they got started and everything they've already achieved. But before we hear the full interview, here are Keisha's activist influences. Oh my God, I could literally just, I could sit here and list all day. First of all, like from the UK, Olive Morris. Olive Morris, who was like really crucial in the Black Panther Party in the UK and like the squatters' rights movement. Because my, my grand lives in Brixton and she's like part of that whole Windrush movement. So that was really prevalent for her during that time. And even like intellectuals, Franz Fanon, Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, anti-imperialist, like anti-capitalist far left like even Marxist revolutionaries who um throughout the lockdown I've really been like reading into like engulfing myself in all of the literature all of the like black revolutionary literature surrounding it you can really see how the things that they talk about it seems so extreme like oh let's burn down like the capitalist state but you can see these manifestations of like capitalism in everyday society and like capitalism imperialism racism homophobia all kind of ties within it all ties together, you know, when we talk about like intersectionality and all of the different types of oppression that people face. It's so much to take in, but it's very necessary. I love, I love them. <laughs> Big up to them. <laughs> Hello, Keisha Wade Speed. Hello. <laughs> Keisha, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I am literally so inspired by you, having only just been talking to you for the past half an hour of everything you've just achieved. We get to the end of our conversation and I find out you're in sick form. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my days. You are incredible. So Keisha, listeners, is a sick former, but is the co-founder of the Halo Collective. Keisha, tell the listeners about the Halo Collective. So the Halo Collective is basically an activism group that is composed of black young people um, we're kind of based in London who all in some way have some experience with hair discrimination or being told by different authoritative members maybe in their school or workplace that they can't have their hair a specific way and we were like well this is something that we need to change because it's not right and it's far too much of a common occurrence for us to just let it slide or say it was a one-time thing because it's definitely not and it makes black people well black people all over the country that we've spoken to all have some sort of experience with being policed because of their hairstyle and we noticed that it was really a racialized thing because if we were to ask white people have you had this experience 
it was completely foreign to them. So as a part of kind of breaking down institutional racism and racist microaggressions, we decided to form the Halo Collective, which just kind of aims to end head discrimination in all professional environments and in general. Listening to you talk straight away, I'm thinking about, right, so this practice that you guys are doing, this practice of collectivity in terms of fighting a a type of racist microaggression and institutional racism, I'm thinking about scholarship and books that have contributed to this stuff. And then how it then later connects to what you are doing in practice. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that, I'm thinking about like black media platforms like Black Ballad, Emma DeBeery's book. I'm thinking about Shirley Ann Tate, Remy Joseph Salisbury, Laura Connolly, people that have been writing about this stuff. So I'm, I'm familiar with the literature and then reading and going on your website and hearing about all the things you've done. It's like primary example of connecting theory to practice yeah exactly and it is so so inspiring and it would be really good for the listeners on that basis of connecting theory and practice to find out a bit about the journey in coming to set up the the halo collective because anyone that's been involved in organizing any kind of organizer knows how hard work it is so how did this happen well this is actually one of the most interesting parts when i tell people like oh how did this come about so basically in February of 2020, oh, pre pre COVID, yeah, pre COVID times when COVID was kind of lingering, but we weren't, we didn't really care about her then. Well, I signed up to an organisation called the Advocacy Academy, um, which is literally like the mother of young youth social justice work in London, particularly. And I got in, and we basically from the summer of 2020. Because of COVID, obviously, we had to do an online fellowship. And usually it's a real life residential. Like we go out and stay somewhere in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. Yeah. Um, And they basically train us up all things activism. Mm -hmm. So every day we just tackle different things like um, gender and race. And we did a lot of like introspective work and basically all to be like good activists. And we completely dissected like everything when it comes to social justice. And by the end of it, even though we had only met each other in real life twice, like me and the rest of the people involved in advocacy, we literally felt like brand new people. It was honestly the most transformative thing. It was like I was being born again, like intellectually, even though it was all through Zoom. So um, from advocacy, in one of the last weeks, advocacy always is known for like their flagship kind of campaigns. So all of the young people, they go into groups and they create campaigns on literally whatever you want to do. As long as it's feasible, then you can do it. So we completely organically kind of grouped together, me and four other black girls who were in advocacy. And we said, right, so what is our common experience? Well, we're all black and we're all women. And what have we experienced? We're all the same age. And hair discrimination is just something that came up like straight off the bat and we grouped with some advocacy academy alumni so people who had already done the social justice fellowship and are like older people so they have all the practice and campaigning knowledge and from then we just kind of it was the code first of all which was me and four other girls and then it became the collective when we banded with those other people so we kind of had more arms we had more capacity to do things because I don't think it would not have nearly been as successful as it has been if we didn't have those like alumni who joined with us and in terms of it becoming a collective when we talk about this in terms of organizing and activism in practice what does that mean on a week-by-week basis 
Um, in the everyday world, it basically means that in the beginning, we had a lot of different arms. So we had a lot of different people with different expertise to work in all of the different areas that we needed. So we took schools, me and the other four girls took schools because obviously we were all students at the time. We had connections to other students. It was just like convenient. And then we had a team that was all for about like marketing and Basically, when we had our launch, they already had people who were in media. Obviously, this was me and the four girls' first time doing anything to do with campaigning. So we had no idea. When we were told to write press release, we were like, what? So are you guys like 16 at this point, 16 or 17 at this point? I was 17. We have, I have one, um, one girl, Katie, and she's in the year below us. Yeah. So she's um, just about to enter year 13 in the yeah. new academic year. But we're all like 17. So we had media and comms. We had like a legal team um, who were working more with like parliamentary personnel to because we want to change the law essentially like that's part of our campaign we did social media as well just because we were the youngest and we were like oh we'll just do social media because this is what we're good at so the collective essentially just gives us so much capacity it just allows us to do so many different things at once instead of us five who are fresh kind of out of campaigning and strategy training without the real life experience we have the people that have the real life experience and we also have an amazing like family advocacy. Um, so we had Liz Ward, who was director of programs at Advocacy, who literally just like led the way for us when we didn't really know what we were doing, which was really good. And also Amelia Viney, who's the founder of Advocacy Academy, she literally works. She worked in like Congress and House of Parliament, so she knows her stuff when it comes to campaigning. So they kind of led the way for us. And we just did all of like the other heavy lifting and we learned so much throughout the way. I think that was really scary at first because we literally had no idea what we were doing when it came to, we gained so much traction. It was almost scary. Like I remember we sat down in one of our meetings and we were like, right, so this blew up now. What do we do? (laughs) And we had to obviously do strategy, like formulation. And this was all brand new to us. All I knew was like what I'm doing for my A-levels and that's it. So it's all just been a huge learning experience and we have such a huge family and support network, which has allowed us to be as successful as we have been. One of the things that I like about your retelling of this journey, Keisha, is that you're emphasising the behind the scenes work. And often um, people only see like the website yeah. or the, like the speeches or the podcasts and whatever. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that isn't necessarily seen as, as quote unquote glamorous. In terms of thinking about it as a collective, do you think you guys are making that behind the scenes work acknowledged within how you how you present what you are do- what you're doing? Yeah, I hopefully hopefully I think so. Yeah, I mean, in terms of when we did press releases at the beginning, we were kind of like the face of Halo, just because we were the ones in advocacy who kind of ignited the idea. But by no means we were the one who's done. We were the ones who've done all the hard work. And I think in naming it a collective, it kind of implies that it's multiple people. And like even people who are not tied to advocacy in any way have had a like push in what what we've been doing. People like Helen Hayes, the MP, she has literally been like by our side the whole time. And she's a trustee for advocacy. But I mean, she's a she's like a middle class white woman. She's never had anything to do with hair discrimination. She didn't even know really what it was about before meeting us but it just kind of shows that no matter what background you're from or what race you are you can be involved in halo it's kind of symbolic in a way because it's like you can be involved in the change and that's kind of the message that we want to 
put out to people because you're, you're not going to really get rid of head discrimination if you don't have help from a lot of different people. So, Keisha, what would you say to people that would say to the collective, you're barking up the wrong tree, this isn't going to happen, why would we end hair discrimination? Mm -hmm. What types of things do you guys say to resist those kinds of critiques? Especially when they're critiques that are racialized and racist, that say things that describe our hair Mm -hmm. in ways that is derogatory. Like, How are you, as a collective, resisting and combating those kinds of critiques? Funny enough, when we received our first like hate email, we were celebrating. You know, if you don't have haters, then you're obviously not doing something right. So we were celebrating and a big part of our campaign is about education. And oftentimes the most ignorant comments are from people who have no experience with hair discrimination. And at the end of the day, it is understandable. Like if the problem is not within your realm, you're not going to understand it. So Halo Code is all about like educating people first and foremost on what is hair discrimination because in these comments that people make it shows that it's a really it's an overt problem for black people but if you're not black then it's like hair discrimination I never even knew that was a thing so to those people who are haters we just kind of try to educate them really and truly to try and show them that it is a problem and it has a huge history even into like the colonial era and that's the birthplace of hair discrimination like segregation based on hair type so education like in any campaign is obviously really important and trying to show people that it actually does have a real life impact because people you know people will say like oh so what you're discriminated on because of your hair so what no one's dying like you're completely fine but we literally have done the studies we've done the research to show that those black children, especially in schools, who are discriminated upon because of their hair type, have less chances of succeeding even in their like final exams because they're being taken out of their classes, they're being condemned for literally no reason. It obviously affects your self-esteem. I think there's a huge stigma in the black community around hair. And just because you're not in the black community doesn't mean that you can't empathise with our position. You can't accept people when they're telling their testimonies of how they've been discriminated upon. In all types of activism, compassion is really like a key element. And that comes through education. I love that, Keisha. (laughs) I know so many black kids that got, and myself, I got sent home before for having um, weave. Like that have experienced exclusion because yeah. of hair. Yeah. Like, I think there's, there's People so People having to, like, relocate because they feel uncomfortable because of a comment that a teacher made. Like, it's mm. a real... When people try to deny that it's a problem, it's like, well, I have a million and one case studies I can give you. So which one do you want to read yeah, first? Yeah. And I have a million and one people you can talk to who are literally within our reach. It's not even like, oh, I have to have to search on the internet for someone in America to come with the testimony. It's like, no, this is a problem that if you speak to, even within like my family community, when we spoke about the campaign, my mum had experiences with her discrimination. My auntie, like my great uncle, they could all testimony to the fact that this is a problem. We like to put our stories like on, in the limelight to firstly show people that obviously this is a real issue and this is something that we have experienced. And also 
to really like give power to those people and instead of kind of treating them like victims and feeling sorry for them we're kind of giving them the power to speak up about something and we like to kind of believe that if you kind of put your story out there then it makes your problem more tangible and it kind of puts it in the faces of people and with that comes a sense of like urgency because if you can see a problem that means that you know that it needs to be fixed. So one of the things I think comes through on the messaging within halo is that interconnection between texture colorism Mm -hmm. and hair i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that forms the way we're trying to create educate well the way you you guys are trying to create but collectively lots of people trying to create education around what these things mean and the real-time impact of these things so i think a lot of the education needs to acknowledge that this is a historical it's not a historical problem but it has historical roots i mean like most things colorism texturism featurism all stems from like the colonial era and like um the slave trade so obviously during the slave trade when there was like mixed race children um, from the slave master and the slave they would be treated a bit better not to say that they were treated well but they would get preferential treatment due to the fact that they were white and black Mm -hmm. and most time if you are biracial you have like lighter skin or you have more eurocentric features like you have looser curls in your hair and i think even though it's a problem that is from it's it's existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago it has really strong resonance today i mean when we look at things like the media there are often really positive connotations looking at like lighter skinned people and even like in music it's so rife where you hear like oh light-skinned girls this light-skinned girls this and on the opposite side of that it's like all of the negative things that come with being dark skin and come with having like 4c or more kinkier hair bigger lips and a bigger nose it's just not you're just not as appealing as your lighter skin counterparts and i think it's a problem that has been trivialized almost in the black community and we need to kind of recognize that is it's a really big issue because it all comes from like white supremacist ideals of beauty and if we're trying to build an anti-racist society you need to recognize that perhaps you may be perpetuating it in a way that you know everyone has like internal biases you may have like colorism internally or textures internally but you need to learn to firstly recognize where that came from educate yourself on where that came from why it's a problem and then how to like break it down because obviously everyone is beautiful in their own way and you don't deserve to feel bad about yourself just because someone told you like oh well you're dark skin that means that you're not beautiful because it has no actual logic behind it 100 percent. there are people who claim to be anti-racist but then will perpetuate these kind of colonial ideas of like colorism Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it makes it literally makes it's really embarrassing to be honest definitely definitely and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to sort of draw on that as well is because one of the things I think has at times been slightly disappointing about the hair movement and bear in mind I'm saying this sat next to you as Mm -hmm. a black mixed race woman Mm -hmm. interviewing you so I'm very much aware of my positionality within this stuff but sometimes in the hair movement I think that there has been quite a lot of space been taken up by women with lighter skin women with looser curls and I think that has been that has been slight it's been disappointing 
But I think that there are organisations like yourselves, amazing women like yourselves, black women like yourselves, that are actually like saying, no, the starting point should not be about reifying lightness Mm -hmm. and uh, looser curls. That Mm -hmm. shouldn't be the starting point. Yeah. And it is kind it's almost like predictable that at times it has been mixed race women that have yeah. been the forefront of this. And I think that, that that again, that is disappointing, but organizations like Halo Collective I think are really, really important for sort of taking up that space. In a lot of activism movements that are surrounding like racialized problems, you often see the people with the most privilege on that basis taking space at the front just because they appeal to like the white gaze in a way. Like if you're Look at this, look at my girl dropping fan on. Look at <laughs> yeah, my girl, look at my love sick former. Look at my sick former dropping yeah, fan on. Okay, come on, let me carry on, carry on. Um, because you you appeal to like the Eurocentric gaze. You're not as like untamed and you're not as kind of wild and exotic as like darker skinned black people so you kind of you leverage that and whilst I think a lot of people go into it with good intentions yes it's like you don't mean to take up this space but you have to really this is when privilege comes and you just have to be aware of your privilege and I think a lot of people get defensive when privilege comes up because it's like well it's not my fault But that's exactly what privilege is. And you need to use your privilege to make space for people who voices are kind of trodden on and people who their opinions are always like pushed to the side on the basis that they don't fit like the Eurocentric kind of ideals of who should be heard. to halo collective in the practical sense you were talking about in our pre-chat you guys meet once a week have you found at any point that you have been tired and found some of this work a bit exhausting and kind of wanted to retract from it or are you guys making enough space for yourself in terms of um, your well-being in doing this kind of work Mm -hmm. I think it's really difficult when running a campaign and doing other things because people who contact us think that Halo Collective is our full-time job and that Mm -hmm. we get paid for it I have not received one penny from doing any of this work this is all free work from the it's literally just runs on our passion and yeah definitely we have reached a point of fatigue even like right now we're in the process of re-strategizing and completely just like reviving the campaign because after Christmas everyone was just tired and obviously I've literally had my a-level exams people have their jobs people have their dissertations to write yeah we had we had everything going on we had people like going hospital for covid so like yeah it was really difficult um and i think we had to just kind of say to everyone like right we get everyone's tired now so let's just take a bit of a break and we took like a two-week break where we didn't do anything we didn't check our emails and then we came back and we're like right we need to sort this out now And now we are in the process of just kind of like trying to put the fire back in the campaign because it definitely was there in the beginning. And there was a point where Halo took up like my entire, all my free time. And I literally was neglecting my schoolwork. Like I would leave school early so I could go to different Halo things or I could go to like an advocacy meeting. But it's all just been a learning curve, like I said in the beginning, like learning how to balance your school and your like activism and your social life and all. So in terms of the practicalities of building a campaign and the next campaign, we spoke mm. about press releases. We spoke about collaborating with members of parliament. Yeah. What other things will you be doing over the coming months and hopefully mm. years? So there is actually a lot of like internal 
kind of miss missteps within the campaign that you obviously wouldn't realize from the outside but there are so many things that we actually need to get sorted and we've recognized like we kind of were stressing at the beginning so we were like oh my gosh it's gonna fall apart because we haven't sent out this email we haven't spoken to this person but that's completely normal like within all movements you're not gonna have everything going like perfectly all the way especially when you have people that are our age group who are just kind of fresh to this scene so when we talk about re-strategizing, we honestly need to just do things internal. We have some issues with like, well, who's going to actually answer the emails? Because there is like 15 people in the collective and not everyone can do emails at once. So even just like all of these things are really mundane, but they're all very necessary. So even we have like emails and we have things like... um okay well we need to have a look at our roles within the campaign because some things aren't as necessary right now as they were before so obviously because we've already released we don't really need to do that many press releases anymore so the people that are doing press releases we need your help elsewhere so um it's just kind of re-delegating roles we had a whole like strategy meeting where we basically just looked at like okay what is halo and what are we trying to do now because we needed that kind of clear vision to carry on or we're just running on nothing basically we needed everyone to remember like why are we here and what are we trying to do so ending hair discrimination by law is the route to doing that via each individual school Mm -hmm. or is it by going to a minister in parliament Mm -hmm. or is it both it's a really difficult question because there's i'd say there's like two routes so you have in the law currently, um, obviously it's illegal to discriminate against people based on their racial like characteristics, but hair is something that is implied within that, but it's not explicitly said. And like I said before, a lot of people don't know that hair discrimination is a thing, or they don't know that the comments they're making about black people's hair can actually be harmful. Or they do know and they don't care. Yeah, exactly. And there's only so much the law can do. Like, we're not going to go to Boris Johnson and say, you need to you need to lock up everyone who makes a comment about my hair, because that's obviously not feasible. Um, and that's why I say it's really important to obviously educate people within schools. I mean, my part of the campaign is kind of dealing with schools and... It would be great to get every school in the country to sign up to the Halo Code, but how is it going to be enforced? And that's something that we're also dealing with within our strategy sessions because it's all well and good. We have like 80 schools now. We have like, I think it's coming up to 200 workers That have signed up to the code and the code basically says we will not discriminate. It's more of like a celebratory thing. It's like we celebrate everyone, all of our students, all of our employees, regardless of like their racial characteristics. Basically, yeah like what you said we will not engage in hair discrimination but like in a positive way you know a lot of people have a problem with my generation so it's like oh your snowflakes like doesn't actually matter but this is an intergenerational issue and like we said it comes from a time like far 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 deep in history i mean not that long ago though is it like if you think about yeah. it like we're still living with the manifestations yeah, of, of colonialism yeah, so of it's actually very much present yeah like but the, evolved the slave trade happened but we are still living with the ramifications of it like yeah. in so many different ways like economic and social aspects and these are all things that obviously need to be dealt with because they can't carry on forever because it's literally it is debilitating the well-being of black people Mm. and i feel like far too many people are scared to speak up on these things 
especially people of my generation, they're scared that they're just going to be labelled like snowflakes and people are just going to like undermine their kind of issues and say they don't really matter. I would say as well amongst progressives, sometimes these kind of racist microaggressions are not necessarily not necessarily downplayed, but they are at times presented either as a red herring mm. or something that should be on the back burner because there's more pressing yeah. inequities that we need to deal with. I do have sympathy for that view, but I've also seen, whether it's through my own experience or through others' experiences or case studies or books or reading or just the news, mm-hmm. how much these like hair discrimination impacts yeah. black people's sense of self. and. Yeah. Our sense of self is integral to our lives. Yeah, exactly. So it is to our functioning yes. as well. And even like I said, it carries on through generations because if you ha- if you harbour that type of self hate due to the comments that you've been victim of, then you go you have children, for example, and then you teach the children like, oh, your hair isn't nice texture. Like if your hair looked like this, then it would be better. It just carries on. As in people that perpetuate some of these issues. Yeah, it's really like really prominent notions, prominent? Prominent Prominent. notions within the black community regarding like hair and all those things that really need to be kind of combated. Definitely. Right, that's not even just like um, white people kind of perpetuating these notions. It's, It's been indoctrinated so deeply within the black community that we now believe it ourselves, that if you have a looser curl pattern, then you are, your hair is better. You know, like good hair. And there's so many little, it's like microaggressions. Labels. Yeah. Yeah, that we want to resist, basically. We should be resisting. That's amazing, Keisha. Keisha, the sick former soon to be, or actually (laughs) by the time this comes out, you probably would have started uh, at Warwick University. Going to be an undergraduate studying politics and sociology come on revolutionary (laughs) join the sociology crew love this keisha you have inspired us so much this afternoon i'm sure you've inspired a lot of listeners and probably made people feel hopeful i think your generation is my favorite generation wow gen z absolute legend that means a lot everyone hates us no they do look sorry i just shouted (laughs) amazing people love gen z because gen z is full of amazing people Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Revolution Begins at Home. If you enjoyed it, you should check out other podcasts supported by Content is Queen. This podcast was presented by myself, Chantelle Lewis, and produced by Keris Bradley. If you want to hear more of our work, there are links in the description. Many thanks to Keisha for talking to us. You can find out more about the Halo Collective on their website. If you want to learn more about hair discrimination, then the Halo Collective website is a great place to start. You might also want to check out the reading list we've included in the description of the podcast. The music for the podcast is from Blue Dot Sessions with additional sound from freesound.org. See you next time. <laughs>